Hello and welcome, everyone. It is the first full episode of Right Man in the Wrong Place. My name is Luke Tatum, and on this show, we're going to review a video game each week. Not only that, but we'll also dive into the bigger issues raised by the game. That might be history, that might be economics, morality, who knows, whatever the crazy world of video games throws our way, but it'll always be fun. Before we start, I do want to give the disclaimer that I might be talking about some side quests, things like that, in a game, but uh, I'm not going to spoil the main plot, so do look out for that. I'm not going to promise that you won't have anything spoiled, but I will not spoil the main story. So without uh, any further ado, with all that out of the way, this this time, this episode, this first kickoff episode, I would like to talk about none other than the infamous Broken Rake Simulator 2019. Okay, actually, just kidding. Um, let's talk about The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt. We'll talk about Broken Rakes later, but I played this game on the Nintendo Switch, which that may be a heresy to some of you, but we'll get into that. So I played it on the Switch. It's not a new game but it has only been on the Switch platform since uh, last year. So, all right, 2018. 2018. We'll start each episode with a description from Wikipedia to give a high-level overview, and then I'll start breaking it down piece by piece. So at the end, I'll tell you if I recommend that you play the game or not. And again, we'll get into the broken rakes later on. So to quote Wikipedia here, the Witcher 3 Wild Hunt is a 2015 action role-playing game developed and published by CD Projekt, based on the Witcher series of fantasy novels by Andrzej Sapowski. It is the sequel to the 2011 game The Witcher 2 Assassins of Kings. Played in an open world with a third-person perspective, players control protagonist Geralt of Rivia, a monster hunter known as a Witcher, who is looking for his missing adopted daughter on the run from the Wild Hunt, an otherworldly force determined to capture and use her powers. Players battle the game's many dangers with weapons and magic, interact with non-player characters, and complete main story and side quests to acquire experience, points, and gold, which are used to increase Geralt's abilities and purchase equipment. Its central story has several endings determined by the player's choices at certain points in the game. Now, speaking of the story, let's start there. So let me say first that really The Witcher 3 is alive. This goes for every aspect of the game, really, but the story impressed me in a way that I didn't even know I could be impressed. It uh, left a lasting impression on me. Um, it should be said that the game's world and characters, they do draw very heavily from the Witcher novels, which gives it a truly rich lore to play in. But anyone who's seen the, um, you know, movies or games out there that have been adapted from books, uh, they, you know, you realize that this isn't always the case. It doesn't always translate well. So just the fact that it emerges as a coherent game at all is a little bit of an achievement all on its own. But especially in this case, it's just absolutely incredible. Since this is the third game in the series, though, I mean, a lot has happened already. 
Geralt is no spring chicken, uh, but he is a seasoned monster hunter who has seen his fair share of sex, betrayal, life-threatening injuries, war, magic, mangled corpses, unholy beasts, and so forth. If you decide to jump into the Witcher franchise with this title, be aware you are going to encounter plenty of characters and factions that are already established, and you may have to spend some time reading the helpful character bios in the game's menu to really know what's going on. Personally, I played the original Witcher game when it was released, but then I played the Witcher 2 for maybe about 10 hours or so, and at that time my PC was just really struggling to get by, so it, it, it was a rough time and I just gave up due to performance lag. So I knew some of the characters, I knew some of what was going on, kind of saw the beginnings of the plot there, but I hadn't made like the major, major decisions. And if you haven't played Wizard 2 at all, or you don't know much about it, uh, there are some really big things that happen in that game. So with all that out of the way, a few hours into The Witcher 3, getting back to the game we're actually talking about today, you will have the opportunity to simulate a Witcher 2 save file. So you'll answer some questions about decisions you made in the second game, or you can just let the game fill in the blanks and kind of skip that if you have no idea what's going on. A lot of these decisions are literally life or death, so just be aware some entire characters may not be in the game at all, depending on how things went in the second game or how you simulate that they went in the second game. thought that was well implemented. And now if you have no idea what's going on, again, it's that is a difficult portion of the game to get through because <laughs> you're like, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know who that is, so I don't know what they did, right? Um, but maybe just read a little bit. There are some guides out there if you just want to jump into the game franchise here. Uh, you can look that up and you can find some quick summaries of maybe what choice you might like to make. Now, the main story, as I mentioned in the Wikipedia portion, it has you seeking a woman named Cyrilla. She goes by Siri for short. Now, uh, she does spell her name with a C, so she is not your iPhone assistant. And these books, I believe, came out before Siri for the iPhone did, so just, just keep that in mind. But, uh, and the Siri is in the books. But Siri trained with Geralt, the main character, at the Witcher stronghold of Kaer Morhen many years ago, and Geralt sees her as a daughter. And so you start with a few leads, you use your mutation-enhanced senses and abilities, and you're essentially retracing her steps for a portion of the game. This might sound a bit like some kind of tired JRPG plot with some boring, you know, Child of Destiny character that is shallow, no one likes that character, but I didn't feel that way at all. You actually get to play through portions of series journey as Geralt and covers them, and so it, it's every bit as endearing and human as the other characters in the game. I actually found the main plot to be more and more interesting as it moved along. And that's not just because, you know, it's breadcrumbings and stuff to you. It's really good. It's well-written, well-presented. So that was nice. Speaking of the main plot, it does seamlessly integrate into many of the other side quests. And so this is another thing I really liked. As you search for Siri, you meet many fully realized characters. 
all of whom have their own motivations, their own desires, flaws. Taking the time to actually help these characters and learn more about them is not only fulfilling for its own sake, but it further anchors you to this world. For example, uh, fairly early on, you're going to meet a character known as the Bloody Baron. This is maybe eight, ten hours in, depending on how you play and where you go. And the series of quests that follow from this encounter are better than the entire plot of some other games. I mean, it's really deep stuff. And The Witcher 3 is is full of just big decisions. You know, you think it's a side quest and it turns into this huge, long, sprawling thing, and it's amazing. Uh, there's There's big decisions and there's heavy consequences. And Geralt, you know, you can't see the future. And this may frustrate some players, but you have to make the best decision that you can with the information that you have. And it may turn out later that you regret it. That happened to me in my playthrough. And it was, you know, it's frustrating a little, but it's so cool, too, because the game is fully explored in that way. Uh, That's life, right? It isn't as simple as loading a save from 10 minutes ago. Uh, This isn't, (laughs) this isn't, Elder Scrolls 3, uh, or 4, or 5. This is this is a totally different type of animal. So the developers are basically telling you, you know, hey kid, tough luck, get over it. There are plenty of quests that you can outright fail permanently if you make the wrong decisions or fail to take action. Even if you scour online walkthroughs to find out what happens in response to all of your decisions, many of these are lesser of two evil Uh, excuse me, lesser of two evils situations, that means there's not really a perfect playthrough. And it's even debatable, gosh, for that matter, which ending is the best one. And that's, I can't get into that because I'll spoil spoil the main plot, but wow, it's, it's something. It's worth watching all the endings. So now, while that sounds harsh, again, I absolutely love it. It's grim, dark, grotesque. You can't save everybody. It's the kind of thing you know you, uh, well, maybe you didn't know that you wanted from a game until you have played this one. So bear in mind, too, that there are, again, three major endings, and that's just kind of the main contours. There's a total of 36 different exact endings. There's three main ways it turns out, and then there's details from a lot of the decisions that you make. So that's it's a lot. Uh, it's... It's like Chrono Trigger, right? (laughs) Let's move on now, though. We've talked enough about the story. Let's move to the art, the graphics. As I mentioned, I did play this game on the Switch, right? So this is where we'll tackle that. It's been out for years now on the PC, the Xbox One, the PS4. For many years, I considered myself mainly a PC gamer, and PC is where I played Witcher 1 in its entirety and the beginning of Witcher 2. But let me tell you, I mean, having a massive, sprawling, open-world RPG with this kind of polish on a handheld device, that's pretty unreal. It's awesome. You just literally pull it out of your bag or, or whatever and play, you know, I don't ride the bus anywhere, but you could play it on a bus. It's crazy. They really, really had to crank down the graphics to make that game run on the Switch, though. And I know that, and there are prettier games on the Switch, and I get that, and just the fact that it runs on the hardware is just amazing, though. 
as anyone who's played it maxed out on a PC, you know, with a 4K monitor can completely attest. So since writing some of my initial thoughts down here, now I have upgraded my PC and I'm actually planning to grab the game on a Steam sale at some point and and port my save over. I believe it has cross-save support. So I'm going to go through the, the game again, at least partially, and really experience it in the full glory. But, you know, it's it's pretty cool uh, to, to be on the Switch, like I say. I, I didn't feel slighted by the fact that I was playing on the Switch. It wasn't like a cash grab, you know. It's not like Skyrim that's on every single platform you know, from it, it's on almost as many things as Doom. You know, people put Doom on their toaster. Uh, it's Skyrim's getting there, so <laughs> it's pretty bad. But it, you know, I didn't feel slighted at all. So, if you own a PS4 and an Xbox One and a Switch, I mean, go ahead and get it on one of the the higher resolution, um, you know, more graphically in, intense platforms. Go ahead and grab it on the PlayStation. But if you would. Uh, like to play it on the Switch and that's your thing, then just grab the game. I mean, it's amazing. And it still looks really nice for what the Switch can do. It's not like the Switch is, you know, some piece of garbage. It's not a PSP. <laughs> it's it's not too bad, right? Uh, so, so just grab it. it it's great. I, only the occasional rare gripe from me on graphics. There were some moments in the game, I mean, I have to say that I just had to stop and admire the beauty of the scene. There's sunsets from the cliff edges in Novigrad. There's thunderstorms from the height of Ard Skellig. There, these are views that I'm not soon forgetting. And again, I played it on the Switch, right? So it's really cool. Segwaying out of that a bit, let's talk about level design. So... These sort of go hand in hand, but I think this is something that gets breezed over a little bit uh, by a lot of game reviewers. So I, I feel like I could almost make a whole episode about the level design. RPGs have had this issue, I guess, since the beginning of time, and I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about when I go into it. You You go into a town, and there are like two houses and four businesses. And that's the whole town. So you're, you know, you might not think about it, but if you do, you start doing mental calculations. Like, okay, so how does a weaponsmith stay open with five other human beings to sell to, all of whom are peasants that don't fight monsters? So who is buying the weapons, right? You're the hero. You're the only guy that has ever shopped there. How does that work? And so... I mean, if you look at like early RPGs like Dragon Quest One, Final Fantasy One, things like that, of course they have this issue, but it's persisted into the modern era of open world games. Elder Scrolls has this issue. The lore in the books in the game, we'll talk about sprawling cities, but if you actually go there, it's like 20 buildings, right? It's like, okay, but... How how is all of this other stuff like who built these buildings? It's not a large enough workforce. It's it's very strange. And Assassin's Creed games have handled it pretty well. You can't go into most buildings, of course, but uh, they do a lot of modeling from historical references, and so that gives them a good sense of scale, which is good. You know, I like the Assassin's Creed games at least 
uh, for the most part. Maybe that's a separate episode. <laughs> but The Witcher 3, unlike any other game I've ever played, has an incredible sense of appropriate scale. That's just why I bring this up. Peasant encampments can be very small, and this is where you're going to spend most of the beginning of the game. The homes are dilapidated, run down, they barely protect against the weather, holes in the walls, you know, that kind of thing. After spending so much of your time in environments like those, when you finally get to one of the larger cities, such as Oxenford or Novograd, it's just phenomenal. I, I couldn't stop talking about this for a while. There are so many buildings everywhere, alleyways that hide members of local gangs, secret basements that lead into the city's sewers, slums that it's extend outside the city walls, and other thoughtful touches really flesh these cityscapes out. Thanks to the close relationship between the quest design and the world design, some really amazing things can happen. So, for example, uh, in the latter part of the game, you have an opportunity to break someone out of jail. <laughs> I'm being intentionally vague here about who that is because, well, I'm not going to spoil it, but, you know, so I'm not going to say why they're in prison. I'm not going to say any of that, but suffice it to say that you get in and you have the key. Uh, you, you have to get the key, I should say. You have to get the key to the cells. So once you do that, you need to leave. You can go out the front gates, which would lead to a large encounter with guards that are at the front gate. Uh, or you can go back the way you came through a long series of sewer areas. Or, this is really cool, if you've already opened it up by completing a previous quest, there's a much shorter and more protected exit from the sewers, uh, which leads into an empty house. Now, you know, the first time you play the game, you might not know that. I happened to have that happen to me, and that's just, it's not like, okay, you do these quests in this order and that's there. It's chance that I did that quest early enough, you know, to have that happen. So it's it's very cool. Entering The Witcher 3, I guess in summary, it's a bit like traveling to another part of the real world. You know, a if you go somewhere full of vampires and corpse-eating necrophages and wraiths and golems and werewolves and succubi and... Um, okay, so maybe that's not the best metaphor. Let's go to the music. <laughs> so music and sound. I love the soundtrack to this game. Love is really too weak of a word. The soundtrack is better than Skyrim's. I hate to harp on Skyrim so much, but... That's one that I think the longer, more time that has passed after the game release of Skyrim, the less enamored I am with that game. And, I mean, I have an autographed copy of the soundtrack to Skyrim, but this has a better soundtrack. The music here is more akin to, well, at least at some points, it's more akin to the third Elder Scrolls game, Morrowind. And, you know, there's melodic phrases that, Conjure other great games, Knights of the Old Republic 2, yeah, especially the second one. It's not to say that the music is a rehash of old material. There are other things you'll hear besides Jeremy's soul. There's some really, really cool things going on. Creative stuff to evoke the right emotions and combat and things. So there's creepy music, there's haunting music. Some of it's just 
incredibly intense. It's truly a treat. Music, uh, it does change from area to area, so it's it's not just like this town has a theme song and that town has a theme song. We've been doing that since the beginning of gaming, but um, there's passive and combat themes, and then certain quests and certain characters have their own themes. And it's it's so seamless. Um, it, it's so good that <laughs> this was just something that pulled me through the game. I actually found myself on quests in certain areas because of how much I adored the music there. It gave it such character. And it's not like you pick, you know, which zone do you want to enter from a menu? You just go. Uh, there's a little bit of that if you're traveling an extraordinarily long distance, but you're going to spend a lot of the game in the same general area, and you travel, you know, you go to the other areas. It's very, very cool how they pulled it off. Um, the same level of care really extends to the overall sound design, in my opinion. There's some pretty gruesome things portrayed in the game. And so the sound is every bit as visceral as the visual presentation is. And the voice acting, too. I mean, it's great. A lot of games out there skimp on this a bit. You know, it's okay, you hire a couple of big names for your major characters, and, you know, I get it. It's a business. Hiring a massive voice cast is a huge expense. You'll find games that have voice actors only for major cutscenes or only for some characters. But here, everyone who talks has a voice, from the incredibly stupid and funny trolls all the way up to kings and emperors. I thoroughly enjoyed the voice work, and nothing stuck out to me as bad voice acting. So all in all, sound of music and all of that bravo to this game. Now, gameplay, we'll have to dive into this a bit. So we've talked about the game's uh, design. Let's talk about the function. What do you do in the game? Well, it's a third-person open-world game. Again, we touched on this before in the Wikipedia, but You'll be walking, running, riding your horse all over the countryside of Velen, Novigrad, uh, Oxenfurt, eventually the islands of Skellige. Since witchers are genetically enhanced monster killers, you have all kinds of tools at your disposal to make this work. So you have cat-like eyes that allow you to perceive details that others would miss, as well as heightened senses of uh, hearing and smell. So when you hold down a button for your Witcher sensors, certain objects are highlighted for your investigation. This could be a trail left from the scent of blood or footsteps left by a monster. You'll also find yourself examining a lot of corpses, determining from the various methods of brutal death what kind of monster you're hunting. So players of games like Batman Arkham Asylum or the sequels to that game, you're going to see a lot of similarities. I mean, it's it's a mechanic that's not unique to this game, but it is well executed here. Your genetic mutations also allow you to withstand the effects of potions that you brew, which can allow you sight in total darkness, longer breathing time underwater, increased strength for your magic spells, which are called signs in this game, uh, faster health regeneration, and so forth. So in order to make the potions, you need to find the recipe and the ingredients, 
and you can only carry so much of each potion at one time. If you have the habit of chasing monsters that are considerably stronger than your player's current level, you may find yourself running out of potions and getting killed as a result. So, interesting mechanic. Still, uh, Geralt is a force to be reckoned with, and a skilled player can pull off some very satisfying kills. You carry two swords, you have a steel blade for humans, and a silver blade for monsters. That's uh, There are some exceptions to a few of those things, but generally that's the rule. And each blade can be coated with oils to further enhance their effectiveness against certain types of foes. So you may have uh, an ogroid oil or a vampire oil, things like that. You can also make some extremely strong potions, known as decoctions, to grant further advantages, but consuming too many will lead to high uh, blood toxicity. So if you have too many toxins in your body, you start to lose health. So as with everything in the game, there's an emphasis on the trade-off aspect. Risk versus reward, etc. So in some games, preparing for a tough boss fight means buying extra health potions. That's more like a dragon warrior kind of a thing, dragon quest. In The Witcher, that isn't possible. You have a maximum amount of potions you can carry, so you can improve your potions and decoctions and your blade oils, but you still have limited uses and toxicity to contend with. So knowing your enemy, consulting your bestiary, and planning ahead are ultimately what wins the day, which is very cool. So that means even a weaker foe can kill you if you're careless, and it also means that a job well done feels properly rewarding. On top of the combat, the questing, and the adventuring, there are some excellent diversions. Horse racing, throwing down and uh, local fight clubs, and of course, Gwent. If you haven't heard much about the game before, you may not realize that it also contains this magnificent card game. Innkeeps, merchants, several other characters are always ready to play Gwent with you, and beating them allows you to get more cards for your deck, so it's a collectible card battling game. Uh, and it's it's literally a battle game, so it's a it's about like warfare. Um, you have, you know, a, a melee range a range and like a siege weapon tier for your cards. It's, it's well executed. It's brilliant. And and I love it so much. You think that, <laughs> you, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, great. It's a mini game, but you will find yourself addicted. Almost everyone does. Um, Gwent was actually such a hit, in fact, that it became a standalone game on everything from GOG, uh, good old games, if you're not familiar with that, to Steam, to smartphones. I haven't spent a lot of time with that version, but it is glorious. And, you know, check it out, definitely. It's it's another well-executed thing. Couldn't be happier with that. There are, in Witcher 3, there are four decks, five if you include the one in the DLC, and each player takes turns playing a combination of unit cards, special cards, hero cards, uh, to try to defeat the other player. The cards can be placed, again, you know, in a close combat range or siege weapon row, depending on the particulars of the card. And, you know, again, it may not sound like much, but trust me on this. <laughs> if, if you ever want to throw down a Gwent match, like, just hit me up. I'm all over that. It is so fun. Now... At this point in the episode, I want to turn to complaints. So I like to stick to the positive, talk about why I like the game, why we're doing an episode about it. 
but then we're going to complain about a few things, <laughs> and then we'll get into uh, the last bit, the issues. So complaints. People in towns all seem to get upset when you run past them, again, to harken back to Assassin's Creed. Uh, it's like that. So in fact, I mean, they can even walk into your character who is standing still and then have an exaggerated reaction and get upset with you, you know, yelling. And it's like, listen, lady, man, you ran into me. I was standing still, admiring my new set of armor, and you just wandered into me, and then you get mad. It's it's completely ridiculous. It's a pretty minor issue, all things considered, but at times I had to laugh at how everyone in the entire game wants to yell at me because I'm going through town. Like, no one else is going through town. Like, I don't get it. Um, inventory management, that does leave a bit to be desired as well. It's it's weird. Um, <laughs> a long time ago, I wrote an entire article about how much I hated the inventory management system in the first Mass Effect, so maybe this is just something that I'm sensitive to. But hear me out here. You have this horse named Roach. Apparently, Geralt names all of his horses Roach. Weird guy, but he's got a winning attitude, so you know, whatever. We'll let it slide. You quest around, going into caves and elven ruins and all that, and you kill people and monsters for all sorts of reasons and pick up their stuff. Then it magically goes to your horse, I think. I say that because the only way to increase the amount of weight your inventory can hold is by getting bigger saddlebags for Roach. Now, I'm not saying I would prefer a system where you have to actually go interact with your horse to move the inventory around, but it's some strange magic indeed that allows me to pick up a suit of armor in a cave and then suddenly my horse has it. I mean, you know, my horse who is not inside the cave, and if I want to equip the armor, I can just pull it right out of wherever and equip it. You know, my horse's saddlebags, I, I just I just don't get it. It bothers me a lot. <laughs> but uh, speaking of Roach, the horse, he can appear anywhere. So that's another weird thing. Uh, you press the left thumbstick twice, and Geralt whistles, which means Roach will instantly appear somewhere near you. This is all well and good. Other games have this mechanic. Uh, but for the first 30 hours or so, that's fine. And, but it does get especially strange whenever you go to the Skaliga Isles. It's like, I, I know for a fact I didn't bring the horse with me on my tiny little boat. There's no room for the horse. So how, how is the horse there? I do not get it. <laughs> now is Roach actually possibly the most powerful magical being in the game? I'll leave that one up to you to decide. Another thing, the quest management system is uh, a little weak. You pick up a lot of quests in this game, and they get broken down by type. You have main quests, secondary quests, witcher contracts, treasure hunts, completed quests, and failed quests. And I did have some failed quests. Whenever you are in a certain region, for example, the Valen countryside, Quests for Velen are listed before quests in other areas. That's all great, it's fine, but you can only track one quest on your map actively. I wasn't really bothered by this at first, 
But especially when the game opens up and, and later on when you have tons and tons and tons of quests because this game is massive, it became extremely annoying. Not only, um, well, because I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know when I was already near another quest. I could just swing by, complete it, and it would have saved me a lot of time. I couldn't possibly tell you how much time, but it would have saved me a lot. Um, you know, at some points, especially certain areas, I would have rather just made a clean sweep and taken care of all the business in that area all at once. I'll be thousands of meters away and then open my quest log and realize I need to go to the far side of the area just to pick up a reward for something else I did. Now, your mileage on this may vary, but I felt a few simple improvements would have gone a very long way, such as a button to sort the quests by suggested level or by proximity. All right, now here's the moment you've been waiting for. You remember at the beginning of the episode, I introduced the game as Broken Rake Simulator 2019. Let's talk about that for a second. Why does every peasant all over the entire region of Velen have a broken rake somewhere in or near their home? Why? I need an answer. I mean, it's not like 80% of the rakes are fine and occasionally you find a broken one. There are no non-broken rakes. I open a barrel in Joe the farmer's house and what does he have in his prime storage location? Nothing but a broken rake. Does he intend to fix the rake? How is it broken? Is there no handle? Is there a secret peasant economy that trades exclusively in broken rakes? Is there some side quest I missed with an NPC that collects broken rakes like the mini metal man from the Dragon Quest games? Is there something desirable about broken rakes that I'm missing due to my own cultural and family background? Did I sleep through that class in high school? If you have an explanation, could you please tell me? Please. Uh, anyway, um, moving on. Let's talk about the issues raised by the game. I intentionally saved this for the end of the episode, even though this is really the most exciting part, and it's sort of why I'm doing the show. But here it is. So let's kick off the issues section with a quote from the game. You may hear this from the protagonist, Geralt of Rivia, at some point as you play. He says, Hatred and prejudice will never be eradicated, and the witch hunts will never be about witches. To have a scapegoat, that's the key. And that leads us right into our first point. Racism. Man, man. The people in this game sure hate each other. Everyone hates sorceresses because they do magic. Everyone hates witchers because they are mutants and also do magic. Just not as much. Humans hate non-humans because they're different. Non-human races hate each other because they're different, but they also hate humans. Humans from Nilfgaard hate humans from the north and vice versa. The people from the Skilliga Isles hate the people of the continent. Uh, you know, it's that whole grim fantasy world thing really played to the hilt. It's not as simple as deciding just, I'm not going to be a racist in this game, though, and, and I like that. Sometimes the other races are the bad guys, and to let them off the hook just because of some preconceived notion about social status would be to willfully ignore the consequences of your actions. There are good and evil non-humans, good and evil humans, but far 
more that exist in a gray area. Once, while traversing the streets of Novigrad, a female elf was being harassed by two human men, who were insinuating that she was up to no good. She insisted that she needed to fetch some water, and now you can choose not to get involved, or you can convince the men to leave her alone. I chose to intervene. I like to be helpful. Um, but I found that the she-elf didn't want my help at all. She didn't buy for an instant that I cared about the plight of elves as second-class citizens. Instead, she was questioning my motives before angrily going on her way. And I saved her. So it's just this crazy thing. Um, but it's so great, and it feels authentic. Guards, soldiers, political leaders, they're constantly using these prejudices for their own ends. In this sense, it's very much a reflection of the real world. As I mentioned in the story section of the review, I, I feel like these kinds of plots within plots are what make the story of Witcher 3 so thoroughly real. One of the kings you will interact with during the game is obsessed with torturing and killing sorceresses. He's kind of been driven mad. But it's not as though there's some good alternative just waiting around to share uh, his enlightened rule. You know, he's <laughs> he is the king, right? That's it. Everyone has an agenda, and this almost always means that there is a scapegoat, as Geralt said. Someone will pay the price, and this game does a great job of showing that this poisons both wells. Humans frequently accuse non-humans of crimes, sometimes with cause and sometimes without, but this goes the other way. The minorities can be just as wrong, um, just as much as the majority can, and this is an important thing to take notice of when looking at reality. Anyone, regardless of political clout, race, social status, or any of these other factors, can be in the wrong. We ought to try our best to examine these things on an individual basis, in my opinion, rather than bringing our biases into it. Um, that means positive bias as well as negative bias. The facts are a lot more murky, and this requires more diligence, but it's certainly a worthwhile cause. I also look at this in... I would love to see something, especially in a game so good, uh, To I would love to see some kind of rulerless options. You know, I mean, why can't we let people sort out their own problems? This is a world without much in the way of technology, but you have to wonder if there isn't a more peaceful way of life than stealing the people's money via taxation, only to spend that money on hunting down and torturing some of those very same individuals who paid for the tyranny this beautiful, melancholic world that the game takes place in gives a real sense for just how sinister political power can be. And often is. Uh, this leads me to another issue, which is political upheaval. There is a lot of political instability in the game right from the outset. Uh, witchers are traditionally neutral on political issues, choosing instead to take contracts slaying monsters from anyone willing to pay. But Geralt of Rivia is a special case, and he has had his fair share of high-profile encounters, especially if you've played games 1 and 2. The Witcher 3 therefore continues the trend, and you get to see all manner of serious political machinations through a very cynical lens. There's something incredibly refreshing about that. I've lived my whole life in the United States. 
And of course, the way we're taught here is that everything the U.S. does is good. We're the good guys in every conflict, selflessly defending freedom from the wicked forces of the terrorist or other countries or whoever the military-industrial complex tells me to hate. But here it's plain as day. All of these politicians have an agenda. They are all wicked and cruel to varying degrees, as this is the very nature of politics. It's not a pretty picture, and it gave me pause. Even, you know, something that I think about all the time, this still gave me occasion to sit back and examine the dark side of even my favorite characters in the game, because there's no... You know, this isn't a Star Wars game, right? It's not pick the light side choice every time. You, you literally can't do that. <laughs> so very, very cool. But it's not to say that The Witcher is a libertarian game or anything like that. It, it, it does have a healthy dose of skepticism written into almost every line that Geralt delivers. And so maybe it's more Parks and Rec than it is, you know, true libertarian agenda or something, but it, it's just great. <laughs> And you'll find yourself laughing out loud, especially if you think similar to myself. Perhaps the best example I can give is when the player travels to the islands of Skellige. So this is later in the game, which is uh, these islands, this culture, it's very heavily inspired by Vikings. There are various clans spread out across a few islands. And while they have a king of the islands... Each area also has relative autonomy to control its own affairs. Historically, this is most similar to the affairs of the uh, ancient world of Ireland, who um, had a king without much political power. It was more a position of reverence than an actual lawmaking power, so not how we think of a king today at all. I enjoyed this part of the game immensely, and not just because Vikings are undeniably cool. It's also heavily steeped in tradition, and there's a certain celebration of the differences between the regions. Yes, they have some hot-headed conflicts, and each regional Jarl boasts about his or her prowess, but there's also a sort of federalism here. Clan A does things this way, Clan B does things this way. If you do something to disgrace your family, you pay the price. It's a system of honor and responsibility. This seems very, very foreign in 2020 in the United States of America. Since I take it as a given that no political system is perfect, and even anarchy would have some issues, these kinds of things are really fun to see played out in a fictional space that has so much care and attention to detail. Those are the biggest ways that The Witcher 3 makes me consider the real world. Now, if you notice something that that I didn't. Again, this is kind of the whole point of the show. Reach out to me, luke at luketatum.com. Just shoot me a message. I'd love to hear from you. But with that said, let's wrap it up. Conclusion time. On the whole, you probably picked up on this, but I have to say I enthusiastically recommend that you play this game. If you're a fan of open world games, RPGs, games that are long, uh, games that make you think the game puts morality front and center, and yet manages to do so in a way that isn't clear-cut. It's not good versus evil. Good versus evil, excuse me. This isn't, uh, it's, it ain't no fable. There's no good points and evil points, but instead your actions have direct consequences, and oftentimes they're far-reaching ones that you can't possibly anticipate at the time that you're forced to make it. Um... 
I put almost 100 hours into the game, and that's before I got into the DLC packs. So Blood and Wine and Hearts of Stone, those are the two. Uh, if you get it on the Switch or really any console at this point, you will get the complete edition. So make sure you get Game of the Year or something to that effect. So you will get the DLC included with your purchase. Uh, just let me tell you right here, the DLC adds an additional level of polish to an already incredible game. Here's what I love. The base game ends and does an excellent job of doing so. It's not a cliffhanger. It's not a setup for a DLC pack. It's not... You know, it doesn't take you to a purchase screen. It resolves the stories it sets out to tell, and it does so very well. To cover the DLC quickly, though, Hearts of Stone is a fascinating tale with a quest line that truly surprised me. Blood and Wine, on the other hand, is it's what really did it for me. I've seen other games... Uh, Excuse me, I've seen other people online compare the complete game, factoring in blood and wine. Uh, you know, it's it's like a painting. If you take the whole thing as a complete picture, it's a, it's a beautiful painting, and it gets more interesting the longer you look at it. Or perhaps as the name itself hints at, it's like a fine wine. You know, it, the, the longer you kind of pause to appreciate, the more you can appreciate it. It's it's amazing. Complaints and all, you know, even with all my ranting about the horse and all of that, it's an awe-inspiring piece of modern game design. And this is from someone who generally holds older games in higher regard than newer ones. But yes, we're, we're concluding here. So the only people who might want to steer clear of this game are those who are squeamish, since this game seriously deserves its mature rating. There is nudity, sex, gore, and some seriously dark themes spread throughout the game. Or perhaps if you're someone who's looking for something upbeat and carefree, you should probably avoid this game too. It, this ain't no Kirby's Dreamland either. <laughs> but look, if you're on the fence, go ahead and pick it up, especially if you can get it on a deal. Um, this is a true achievement in just about every sense of the word. So that's it for the first episode. That was a long one. They're not all going to be this long. I'll see you again soon. Uh, I really hope you enjoyed the episode. And if you're thinking about getting the game, just, um, just you know, you're not sure, again, email me. If you got feedback, email me, luke at luketatum.com. You can find the show's show notes for today's episode over at anchor.fm slash luke-tatum. That's L-U-K-E-T-A-T-U-M. That should have all my shows soon, but right now it's just right man in the wrong place. And until next time, remember. The right man in the wrong place can make all the difference in the world. <laughs>